Hi there, everyone. This is Michelle Ann Olson, your host. Welcome to Are You Afraid of the Bark, the podcast that goes bark in the night. This is episode six, and in this episode, I'm excited to explore a topic that I had researched for the previous iteration of the podcast, but that was never fully realized or recorded. So I'm excited to be here today with some supernatural stories from the ocean. As you may know, the ocean is near and dear to my heart. I do work Sorry, you can hear Coco going crazy in the background. She's decided to have the... Coco, are you okay? Yeah, she's decided to have the noontime zoomies back and forth and is just meowing up and down my apartment. I apologize. This is just the way things are here. So anyway, the ocean near and dear to my heart. As you know, I work at an aquarium. I'm an educator talking all about sea creatures all day, all about ocean conservation all day. I just love it. The ocean calls to me having spent part of my formative years in Newfoundland. I miss the ocean all the time. I seriously believe that I'm meant to relocate to a coast at some point in my life. I love ocean creatures and so I'm really looking forward to sharing these stories, these myths with you today. I also wanted to give a little shout out before beginning to my friend Kimberly. In the previous version of the podcast, we had a little contest whereby if you wrote a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, your name was entered into a drawing to select the topic for an upcoming episode of Are You Afraid of the Bark? And Kimberly was the one who won that contest and it was actually her suggestion to explore spooky topics, uh, spooky maritime topics. Unfortunately, before that episode aired, the previous iteration of the podcast had ended. I guess that this is your episode, Kim. I'm sorry that it's coming later than anticipated. Thank you for that wonderful idea. I did have a a lot of fun researching this topic, and the two myths that I'll be presenting today are just a selection of all of the spooky stuff that's out there pertaining to sea creatures and to the sea itself. So hopefully this is a topic that I can revisit sometime in the future. You also might notice that my voice is more or less back to normal. I think so. I hope so. That's because I finally finished my summer camps and things are back to normal at my job. So I'm no longer raising my voice and like overextending my voice at work every single day. So that's really good. I am glad that things have gone back to normal. I, for one, This might be an unpopular opinion, but I, for one, am looking forward just to the fall and to fall weather and to attendance sort of dropping at the aquarium. A little bit of a respite from the crazy, sweaty summer months and from those camps. I did want to quickly share what I thought was my single best kid quote of the summer. This was a kid who was in my camp this last week of summer camps and super bright love this kid. His favorite animal is literally the tasseled wabagong. So look up a picture of that animal. Fairly obscure, hilarious choice for a five-year-old to claim as their favorite animal. Really bright kid. Anyway, he comes in one morning during pre-care. There's only a few kids there. He comes up to me and he's very matter-of-fact and he says, there are five kinds of animal. And I was like, oh? 
So then he raises his hand in the air and he's counting down. He goes, fish, invertebrates, and outvertebrates. And then he just walks away. So that was like the best, just the best thing ever. <laughs> For the term outvertebrates makes perfect sense. And then, uh, yeah, we'll never find out what those final two types of animals were, I guess. But uh, anyway, that was probably one of my favorite kid quotes of the summer. Just a super smart kid thinking outside of the box. Sorry, this has been another bit of a tangent. Let's get back to our topic, which is creepy mythological creature legends and starting with none other and please excuse my butchered pronunciation of this word starting with none other than the Baki Kujira again my sister if she's listening is probably laughing at my Japanese pronunciation Baki Kujira the Baki Kujira is essentially a ghost whale specifically it's the skeletal spirit of a dead whale. So Japan, being an island, has a history that has been heavily informed, obviously, by the sea, by food procured from the sea, by fishing, and by whaling. To this day, actually, I'm not going to get into that because as a whale lover, it's a complicated question, this, this modern Japanese whaling industry, but whaling and reliance on the sea are a big part of Japanese history. So whalers in Japan believed that the Bakekujira, that these ghost whales, are the returned spirits of hunted whales who come to bring vengeance on Japanese whaling communities. So these ghosts, uh, and another translation for the word Bakekujira is goblin whale, haunt the coasts of western Japan. The Bakekujira is supposed to be enormous. And when the skeletal spirit, the skeletal whale, approaches a community, it is almost always accompanied by a host of strange birds and fish that no one seems able to identify. So this ghost literally appears as the floating skeleton of a dead whale. But the skeleton itself is infused with some kind of life, and often with a kind of curse. So in one story, a fisherman went out into the water to encounter a Bakikujira to try to catch it. But when he threw his harpoon, it passed straight through it. And the whale and its host of strange animals just floated away into the night. Coco, what are you doing? goodness. Sorry. So, oh my god. <laughs> she's the best, but she's so annoying. So, apparently, when a Bakekujira approaches a community, it brings a powerful curse with it. So this is known as the curse of the whale. So when a Bakekujira appears to a community, it is said to bring with it things like famine, plague, fires, and disasters to the whaling village that it targets. What's interesting is that that idea is the complete opposite of what finding a whale would usually bring to a Japanese whaling community. In ancient times, whales were rare and important. They would come inland or beach themselves on the shore. 
these whales would be harvested using something called passive whaling, where fishermen would go out into the harbor or into the shallows and would use harpoons to kill a whale that might have been trapped there. And this was a rare and auspicious event because that whale would provide a huge amount of meat and resources for the village. This is before the time, of course, of like massive whaling ships or whaling industry. So this would provide a huge amount of meat to the village and could seem like a gift from the gods. Also, when the whales came in, following large schools of fish, those fish being trapped or brought into the shoals by the whale represented an additional bounty for these villages. The arrival of a whale could save a village that maybe had been dealing with starvation or lack of nutrients. So whales typically in this culture represented bounty. The Bakikajira, on the other hand, represent the polar opposite, and the appearance of one of these spirits is thought to be uh, a forebringer of disaster or tragedy. So there's only one confirmed or oft-cited encounter with a ghost whale in Japanese lore, but this one encounter has pervaded Japanese myth along with the idea of other changing creatures like the Bakaniko, which are Japanese supernatural cats or changing cats, and they were discussed at length in a previous episode of Are You Afraid of the Bark, the previous iteration of the podcast when I had a co-host. If you're able to find that episode, Bakaniko are a super interesting topic, in my opinion. So anyway, there's only this one record of an encounter with Bakikujira, and yet like the Bakaniko, the idea of the ghost whale is still present, strongly present, in Japanese myth and lore. So here we go. This is the one story that appears time and time again in reference to the ghost whale. Quote, One rainy night long ago, some fishers living on the Shimane Peninsula witnessed an enormous white shape off the coast in the Sea of Japan. Squinting their eyes, it appeared to them to be a whale swimming offshore. Excited for the catch, they rallied the townspeople, who grabbed their spears and harpoons and took to their boats to hunt down and catch their quarry. They soon reached the whale, but no matter how many times they hurled their weapons, not one of them struck true. When they looked closer through the dark, rain-spattered water's surface, they realized why. What they thought was a white whale was actually a humongous skeleton swimming in the sea, not a single bit of flesh on its entire body. At that very moment, the sea became alive with a host of strange fish that nobody had ever seen before, and they swarmed full of eerie birds which nobody could recognize, and the likes of which had never been seen before. The ghost whale then turned sharply out to sea and swiftly vanished into the current, taking all the strange fish and birds with it, never to be seen again. The terrified villagers returned home, realizing that the skeletal whale must have been a Bakikujira. The ghost of a whale turned into a vengeful ghost. While the ghost whale was never seen again, other villages in Shimane felt the whale's curse, being consumed by conflagrations and plagued by infectious diseases following whale beachings. End quote. As a side note, as the number one fan of whales in general, Listen, if a vengeful whale wants to come back and plague and curse the people who killed it, I'm probably on the whale's side. But I'm always going to be on the whale's side. You know, whales are better than people. So anyway, 
another unpopular opinion. So in the 1950s, there was a manga artist named Mizuki Shigeru who was working on a story for Kamashibai, again, butchering this language, about a Baki Kujira with the name of Kujiragami, or Whale God, in which a man eating a lot of whale meat slowly turned into Dikaju, who was a giant whale bipedal, walking on two feet, reaching 200 meters in height. So the author suddenly came down with a terrible fever while working on this story, and that only went away when he quit working on the story. He called this the curse of the Bakekujira. So both Bakekujira and Dekaiju uh, were later made into several episodes for TV programs and animated movies. In the 1980s, in 1983, an intact whale skeleton was spotted floating off the shores of Adamizu, Ishikawa Prefecture. The press jumped on that story, calling it a real-life Bakikujira. Of course, this was just an intact whale skeleton, not anything supernatural, though a significant scientific finding. I'm not sure if any folks in Toronto were able to get out to the ROM last year when they had that incredible whale exhibition, but essentially 14 blue whales, unprecedented loss of blue whale life off the coast of Newfoundland a few years ago, meant that the ROM and scientists in Newfoundland and Canada were able to successfully recover and reconstruct the world's most intact blue whale skeleton and put it on display at the ROM. They learned so much from those bodies of those 14 blue whales, and it was just incredible to see the size of the skeleton reconstructed here in Toronto. Really sad loss of life, but like a very important scientific finding. So it's interesting in Japan that we jump to, you know, real life ghost whale. And in other parts of the world, we're like, yes, like, let's, let's science this. <laughs> it's just, it's an interesting cultural take uh, on the part of the media. Some real-life explanations of the Bakekujira could actually be fairly simple by our own understanding, though maybe were misinterpreted by communities in the past. It's possible that these sightings could have been of real whale carcasses, which do, as gases release, tend to float to the surface of the water, which were then being consumed by birds and fish. Again, if you've ever seen uh, Blue Planet, there's this one episode where the carcass of a whale is shown to host an entire ecosystem as it's biodegraded. So maybe what they could be seeing is just this host of birds and fish feasting on this carcass. And, and that's a very real thing that happens. Even a dead whale provides just a ton of nutrients to other species as it biodegrades. And another possible explanation of this myth could be that stories of Bakikujira were used as sort of an enemy distraction, floated into a harbor similar to a Trojan horse to allow for competing raiders to burn or pillage an empty village. So literally floating a whale corpse on purpose into a harbor, causing the community to flip out and flee so that opposing communities or raiders could then pillage and, and burn the empty village to the ground. So those are some potential true life or more realistic explanations for this myth. But again, personally, I'm not totally opposed to the idea of a whale ghost seeking revenge against the people who wronged it. You know, I'm on 
you go whale. I'm on your side completely. My next legend or tale comes out of the Amazon region of South America and centers around a curious creature known as the Amazon River Dolphin or Boto. These dolphins, if you've never seen a picture of them, look like unlikely in and of themselves. They're freshwater dolphins with tiny squinty little eyes, long like thin rostrums, thin snouts, very fleshy and often pink colored. And they live in the Amazon River and other freshwater bodies and can barely see due to the murkiness of the water. Some people say they're ugly. I think that they have their own kind of charm. So they are called again Amazon River Dolphins or Boto. And this legend surrounds their strangeness and, and their existence. And this legend is known among the people who live in the Amazon basin where these animals are found. So there are some tribes in South America who believe that during a full moon, the Amazon River Dolphins can shapeshift into handsome men dressed in white always in white, and can go into nearby villages and charm and impregnate young girls or women in those villages. So these women would inevitably give birth to children, but when the children come of age, they would often want to be with their shape-shifting parents and would go to the rivers and to the underwater cities where the Boto live. So these creatures, these mythological shape-shifting entities, are known as encanditos, and they've also been known to lure children into the rivers to take them away and to their underwater cities, which apparently are quite alluring in and of themselves. They have this sort of Atlantean property. So encandito is a word in Brazilian Portuguese that translates roughly to enchanted one. It's used to describe the creatures who come from this paradise, this underwater realm called the encante. So when the dolphins are in their human form, they're pale-skinned and graceful. They dress in white clothing in an old-fashioned style. Think sort of 1920s, 1930s. And this is the best part. Although they're very charming and very handsome, typically men, the transformation from dolphin to human is never totally complete. And they retain a bald spot on the top of their heads where their blowholes remain. And for this reason, the Encandado always keeps his head covered, usually with a broad-rimmed straw hat. I think that's amazing. It's just such a funny Achilles heel that uh, he's got to wear his hat because he's got a blowhole in the top of his head. They're apparently better at returning to their dolphin form, although it has been reported that some Boto or Amazon River dolphins have appeared with hand-like pectoral flippers as though the transformation back into dolphin has not been completely successful. So there are three elements that characterize Encantados. They are very musical. They're able to sing beautifully or play guitar. They're seductive, and they love sex, which results in these illegitimate children. They're also attracted to parties. So Encandido are curious about human society, but due to their love of music and parties, they're especially fond of festivals 
and parties where they can enjoy music and dancing. This is where the Encandidos are most likely to materialize or show up, are these big festivals, weddings, whatever, where, where there's where there's music and, and food and dancing and, and, and just joyfulness and revelry is where they're most likely to show up. So it's not unheard of for an enchanted one or Encandido to live on land long term and make a living as a musician. But kidnapping is the common theme in this folklore. They're apparently fond of abducting the humans they fall in love with, the children born of their love affairs, or anyone near the river who can keep them company, and bringing them back to Encante. Again, these legends are about disappearances, but it's never implied that the Encandido are dangerous or kill those that they kidnap, or that life below the river is bad in any way. In fact, it's implied that Encante is enchanting and like some kind of Atlantis is a place where humans might be drawn and wish to stay. So this isn't a myth where the humans involved like lose their lives or, or are in physical danger. It's more the danger of being lured away to this magical place and never wanting to return to their villages or to their families. As with many legends of this type, if you think to the Kelpies in Scotland or even the fairy stories that were told in Newfoundland, we learned them even in middle school in St. John's, this seems like a tale that's warning the people who live on the river's edge to just beware the river, to stay clear of the river's waters, uh, lest they be taken away never to return. And I think that this is probably one of those myths I'm not saying it's not true. It's a wonderful idea if it is, but probably one of those myths that was born as a warning just to keep people away from the water's edge. If they were afraid of being taken away from their villages, if they steered clear of the water because they were afraid of the Encantado, then maybe they would also stay away from the river's edge and be less likely to be victim to drowning or a caiman attack or, you know, encountering a giant snake or whatever the case might be. So many of our legends are based in those warnings. I still think it's kind of a, a lovely idea, though. There's nothing overtly harmful about the Encantado. So those are my two myths, my two legends, my supernatural stories this week pertaining to the sea and its creatures. Like I said, I found so many other stories about Tanawas and Selkies and Kelpies. So hopefully this is a topic that I'll be able to revisit again in future. And those are just legends of the sea pertaining directly to like animals or animal-like spirits. The sea is just so mysterious and I could probably do an entire podcast just about the real world ways in which the ocean is alien and freaky. Like there's <laughs> sometimes pictures of deep sea animals to me are as scary as like any invented sea monster. Anyway, hopefully it's a topic I can revisit because clearly it's a topic that I love. I love talking about the ocean and I hope that you enjoyed these stories as much as I enjoyed researching and telling them. So this does conclude episode six of Are You Afraid of the Bark? Thank you as always for listening. And if you would like to reach out to me, I can be reached in a number of ways, including by email at afraidofthebarkpodcast at gmail.com, on Facebook at AYAOTB podcast, 
on Twitter at Afraid of the Bark and on Instagram at Afraid of the Bark Podcast. If you liked the podcast and want to show your support, the very best way to do that would be by subscribing on your podcast provider of choice and by leaving a review specifically on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, a starred review and a written review that despite where you get your podcast, if it's Spotify or Pocket Casts or Blueberry or whatever, leaving your review there on Apple Podcasts is still the single best way to get the word out that this is a podcast that you enjoy listening to and and that other people should listen to as well. So once again, thank you for listening. Of course, now that I'm done recording, Coco has quieted down. She should just be my co-host, really. I should just like have her on my shoulder contributing from time to time. Anyway, that's the end of episode six. Thank you again. And as always, I will wish that you have sweet dreams tonight. Thanks for listening. Ha, ha, ha.